As you come today to church, um, you know, we, we're such a large crowd. We'll be coming from all sorts of different experiences, backgrounds, environments. And I wonder, who is the God that you believe in? I've heard people say in the past something like this. I, I like to think of God like this. And then they tell you what they like to think of God as being like. Or if someone's being a bit more feisty and a bit negative, I've heard even people say like this, well, I couldn't believe in a God who is like that. And then they say what it is. I'll never forget hearing Oprah Winfrey, the, um, uh, the, sort of the TV lady from the States, uh, once saying how as a young person she went to a church and heard the preacher say that God was a jealous God and that was it for her. She walked out, never wanting to be involved with Christianity because she could not believe in a God like that. So, well, who is the God you believe in this morning? It can seem wise and, and thoughtful to say, well, I like to think of God like this and I don't like to think of God like that unless we start thinking about what we're saying. If you give it a moment's thought, it's actually a very odd way to speak about a person, isn't it? Uh, as we were reminded earlier, school starts up in a couple of weeks, or in, in about 10 days or so. And it would be very odd to ask a, a student heading up to secondary school and say, well, you know, what, what, what do you think it's going to be like? And the student musing, well, I, I would not like to believe in a teacher who gives homework. I, I, I would like to believe that I'm going to have a teacher who puts lots of tick marks and gives me very high grades. Well, you might think, well, that's all very interesting what you'd like to believe. Uh, but, of course, how you imagine that teacher is completely irrelevant. What they really like is actually what's significant, and you're going to find out pretty soon. You know, most pundits have commented that uh, the new Prime Minister, Theresa May, that we know very surprisingly little about her. Similarly, it, it'd be very odd for us to sort of say, well, I'd like to think of the Prime Minister like, like this. Well, it's not really what you would like to think you'll discover what they're really like in due course by their words and their actions. And so do you see, it's a bit daft, isn't it, to, to describe the sort of God you would like uh, according to your personal preferences, uh, as if you, that was any meaningful way to view the God who is there. The point is not to imagine how you'd like God, but who is God? What is he actually like? The God who is at the heart of the universe. And so if you want to know God, the real God, then this was a great Sunday to come to church. Because this God is not a secretive God. He's, he's not a God who hides away. But he's a God who's made himself known. And so please open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 44. And if you have one of the church Bibles, you'll find that on page 732. If you've got your own Bible, it's somewhere wedged in between Song of Solomon and Jeremiah. And you'll find the book of Isaiah, chapter 44. And we're going to read from verse 24 to the end of, uh, of chapter 45. But as we read, I want you to notice that there is this statement. This is what the Lord says. Five times 
This is what the Lord says. And five times we also hear declared, I am the Lord and there is no other. Here is the emphatic claim as we come to the Bible. This is what the Lord says. I am the Lord and there is no other. This is the one and only God and he is wanting to communicate to us. So before I read, let me pray. Lord, as you have spoken through Isaiah the prophet to your exiled people, help us to, under, help us to understand your word to them so that we might hear your word to us and be saved through our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So Isaiah chapter 44, verse 24. This is what the Lord says. Your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things, who stretches out the heavens, who spreads out the earth by myself, who foils the signs of false prophets and makes fools of diviners, who overthrows the learnings of the wise and turns it into nonsense, who carries out the words of his servants and fulfills the predictions of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, it shall be inhabited. Of the towns of Judah, they shall be rebuilt. And of the ruins, I will restore them. Who says to the watery deep, be dry, and I will dry up your streams. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt. And of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus whose right hand I take hold of to subdue nations before him and to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you and will level the mountains. I will break down gates of bronze and cut through bars of iron. I will give you hidden treasures, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name and bestow on you a title of honor, though you do not acknowledge me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, people may know there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker, those who are nothing but potsherds, among the potsherds on the ground. Does the clay say to the potter, what are you making? Does your work say, the potter has no hands? Woe to the one who says to a father, why have you begotten? Or to a mother, why have you brought to birth? This is what the Lord says. 
the Holy One of Israel and its maker concerning things to come. Do you question me about my children or give me orders about the work of my hands? It is I who made the earth and created mankind on it. My own hands stretched out the heavens. I marshaled their starry hosts. I will raise up Cyrus in my righteousness. I will make all his way straight. He will rebuild my city and set my exiles free, but not for a price or reward, says the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord says. The products of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and those tall Sabaeans, they will come over to you and will be yours. They will trudge behind you, coming over to you in chains. They will bow down before you and plead with you, saying, Surely God is with you and there is no other. There is no other God. Truly, you are a God who has been hiding himself, the God and Savior of Israel. All the makers of idols will be put to shame and disgrace. They will go off into disgrace together. But Israel will be saved by the Lord with an everlasting salvation. You will never be put to shame or disgrace to ages everlasting. For this is what the Lord says. He who created the heavens, he is God. He who fashioned and made the earth, he founded it. He did not create it to be empty, but formed it to be inhabited. He says, I am the Lord and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret from somewhere in a land of darkness. I have not said to Jacob's descendants, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Gather together. Come. Assemble, you fugitives from the nations. Ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be. Present it. Let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? Who declared it from the distant past? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn... My mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow. By me, every tongue will swear. They will say of me, in the Lord alone are deliverance and strength. All who have raged against me will come to me and be put to shame. But all the descendants of Israel will find deliverance in the Lord and will make their boast in him. This is the word of the Lord. A bit of context. Isaiah prophesied about 700 years before Jesus Christ came on the scene. Addressing particularly the people of Judah and Jerusalem who were heading towards a total national disaster. First they were threatened by the Assyrian Empire and then finally conquered by the Babylonian Empire, who destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple in 586 BC, and took many people into exile. And Isaiah, in a sense, the second half of this book, is the writing that he put down and had sealed up for the day when these exiles 
in Babylon would be on the floor wondering to themselves as they saw the, the temple destroyed, which, which was the visual symbol of their relationship with God, as they were carted away from the promised land that God had given them. They must have wondered, is it all over for us? Is it all over for our relationship with God? Is there any hope? Is there any future? They had watched uh, the Babylonian Empire with its gods and idols conquer Jerusalem, conquer the temple. Does that mean that the gods of the Babylonians were more powerful, were more mighty? There they were living in this idolatrous nation, being told this is the way to live, this is the way to worship. Ignore the God of Israel. This is the way to live. And Isaiah wrote these very words for a time like that. A time when people were questioning their identity, their faith, and their future. Just think about the many refugees that we are seeing fleeing from uh, homes in Syria and other places, uh, leaving everything behind, forced to start again in a foreign culture with people who speak a language they don't really fully understand. And that gives you a sense of the confusion, the, the heartache of these Jewish exiles forced to live in Babylon. And yet in God's grace, he wants to speak to this rebellious people. The first 40 chapters of Isaiah make it clear the reason that they're in the mess they are is because of their rebellion and sin. God repeatedly warned them. He warned them and he warned them, but they refused to repent. They refused to turn around. And this was a rebellious people who actually had got exactly what they deserved. And yet God, in his grace, writes these chapters because there's hope. He wants to put into them. And the only true source of comfort and encouragement for us as we live in a, in a time also where there's great upheaval, where the cause of Christ and his church looks like a diminishing and insignificant thing and secularism and, and all that's around us seems to be leading the way and successful. These words of comfort are for us and our only place of comfort is to grasp the greatness of God. To grasp the greatness of God who uses surprising strategies to fulfill his purposes. And when we see that, to wholeheartedly trust him for our salvation and for our future. Now there's three main sections to what we've just read. And uh, I'll put, put them all up there. In truth, I'm going to focus really on the first one mostly. In verses, uh, chapter 44, verse 24 to 45, verse 8, we see God's greatness. In, in verses 9 to 13, we see our arrogance. And in, in verse 14 to 25 of chapter 45, we see God's incredible, gracious invitation. So that's where we're heading this morning. First off then, God's greatness. This section is framed by these amazing statements. Look at the beginning and end. Look at uh, 44 verse 24 again. This is what the Lord says, your Redeemer who formed you in the womb. I am the Lord, the maker of all things. Now look at chapter 45 and verse 7. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, 
do all these things. Advance warning, we're in the deep end of the theological pool this morning. You might start feeling a bit panicked and nervous because you can't feel the ground underneath your feet, but hang in there. This is a fundamental and mind-stretching truth about God. The Lord is the maker of all things, and the Lord does all these things. God is wanting his people to know that the buck stops with him. He is claiming final responsibility for everything that happens in history. Even the disasters and calamities come under his control. Now, of course, this is perplexing, but actually also very encouraging for those who are part of his redeemed people. Notice again, verse 24, God is addressing people who know God as their redeemer, a people that God has formed and brought together. This is the God who is the only God who exists. Everything has been made by him. As it says in verse 24, he, he stretches out the heavens. I find it fascinating as an aside that the, uh, the universe is still continually expanding. He's still stretching it out. He stretches out the heavens and he spreads out the earth. And the Bible says he does it all by himself. By myself. Nobody else was needed. Nobody else assisted. God does it all on his own. He's the sole creative power in the universe. And so this God is also fully able to intervene in human history in any way he wishes. He doesn't need people's permissions. There's no higher power that he has to check in with. First, he is active in the world that he created, as it says in verse 25. He foils the plans of of some people, and he fulfills the predictions of his prophets. We've seen this very recently, haven't we? Political pundits and market analysts and pollsters try to predict exactly what's going to happen in the future. They draw lines from the past, and they stand there, and they tell us what's what's going to happen. But as we see over and over again, no one really knows the future. And supposed certainties can get quickly blown away by actual events. God can sovereignly act in history so that the wisdom of the pundits of the wise can look like nonsense. And at the same time, God is a God who has the capacity to let his prophets know and proclaim in advance what will happen. And these words and prophecies get fulfilled. Now, we live in a world where there are many uh, religions, worldviews, philosophies, and they all proclaim to be the truth, don't they? How on earth do you know who to believe? How do you know who to trust? It's a huge topic uh, worthy of its own uh, time. But here's one test that is found here in Isaiah, and it's this. Who can tell you what will happen in the future, and it happens just like that? If, if someone can do that, that's the person that you can trust. And that's exactly what uh, the God revealed in the Bible does over and over again. It's one of the remarkable facts about the Bible. To see prophecies spoken of hundreds of years before uh, being fulfilled in history. 
We can dig it up. We can see that it happened as he said it would happen. He foils the plans of people and he fulfills the predictions of his prophets. So God spoke to Isaiah the prophet and to let the people know that Assyria that, were, that was uh, conquering the northern country of Israel and coming to sweep up Judah and Jerusalem, Isaiah lets them know he's not going to take Jerusalem. But actually one day Babylon is going to become an empire and they would take Jerusalem. And of course that was mocked by the uh, army general of Assyria. You can read in Isaiah uh, 38, around there, 37, 38. You can read how he mocked these claims and was proud of his idols and gods and he was going to succeed. But of course he didn't take Jerusalem. Events took place exactly how God had declared it through the prophet. God intervenes and acts in history. And here in chapter 44 and 45, we have perhaps one of the strongest and most extraordinary statements of this sovereignty of God who makes events happen. And Isaiah declares that uh, God does very surprising and improbable things to bring about the future that he desires, to bring about a future for the exiles in Babylon. He promises the exiles that Jerusalem would once again be inhabited, that the towns of Judah would be rebuilt, and the temple foundations would be relayed, and the exiles would go home. What a great, wonderful promise of encouragement to them. And the incredible thing is that God gives them the actual name of the person who's going to do it. Cyrus. Now think how extraordinary this is. He announces it 150 years before it happened. Who, 10 years ago, would have said that Donald Trump would be the Republican nomination for president? Nobody five years ago was saying that. Everyone was joking. They would, and not, everyone's terrified now, aren't they? Can you imagine how extraordinary it would be if we could uh, discover a document that was written 100 years ago that said that in 2016, the name of the President of America would be Barack Obama. How extraordinary that would be. Well, long before there's even a Babylonian empire, God was announcing the name of the king of the Persian empire uh, from an area that no one was even barely aware of, that, that that would become an empire and gives you the name of the king who would actually one day overthrow the Babylonian empire and actually command exiles to go home and Jerusalem and its temple be rebuilt. And that is exactly what archaeology attests took place. This is just too extraordinary for some skeptical uh, commentators. And so they think, well, uh, there's actually a, a second Isaiah, Deutero Isaiah, that wrote you know, hundreds of years later after fact and wrote this all down. But you know what? There, there's just no evidence of that. We only have got one copy of, uh, of Isaiah. Whenever we dig up Isaiah, it's one whole book. And no one doubts that the first part of Isaiah was written when it was, around 700 B.C. Now, this is an extraordinary evidence of the sovereignty of God. He is able to purpose and create the future. I mean, imagine there's the parents, little baby's on the way. What should we call him, darling? I don't know. I don't know. Shall we call him Derek? Shall we call him Tony? No. Let's call him Cyrus. And they made their own decision. They decided they were going to call him that. But actually, God had already determined 
that that would be the name. God is actively working all things out for his specific plans and purposes in the world. And actually, this would have stuck perhaps in some people's throats when they heard it amongst the exiles. Look at verse 28, who says of Cyrus, this is what the Lord says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and will accomplish all that I please. He will say of Jerusalem, let it be rebuilt, and of the temple, let its foundations be laid. This is what the Lord says to his anointed, to Cyrus. If you've been coming along to Charlotte over the last few weeks, and I've been listening on the podcasts, you will have heard how God hates idolatry, and you have long sections denouncing it. But here is Cyrus being described as God's shepherd, the Lord's anointed, and who is Cyrus? He's an idolater. He's a pagan king. This must have been very surprising and very stuff for some, uh, tough for some of the Jewish uh, exiles as they read it. In Ezra chapter 4, you can read the actual edict of Cyrus, who did free the exiles to go home and, and rebuild the temple. You'd be disappointed if I didn't mention the British Museum, wouldn't you? Have you gone to it? It's fantastic. Have you gone to the British Museum yet? Well, if you go there, you'll see they've got this thing called the Cyrus Cylinder. You can see, chiseled in stone, the very edict of Cyrus. And uh, what you discover is that Cyrus was a very canny dictator. And he not only told the Jewish people to go back and rebuild the temple, he told all the different peoples that are conquered to go back home and build their temples so that they could all pray for him. Very canny. He was hedging his bets. But this Gentile idolater was acting according to God's plans and purposes. He didn't know it. He didn't acknowledge it. You saw that twice, didn't you? Verse 5, though you have not acknowledged me. He's doing all this. Verse 4, though you do not acknowledge me. God does not need our permission to use us how he wills. God achieves exactly what he purposes Extraordinary, incredible. I hope that you continue to pray for our Queen, uh, for our new Prime Minister, for the First Minister of Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon, as they're in positions of authority and leadership in our country. Whether they profess to be Christians or not, God is at work in their appointments, and we should pray for them in these turbulent times of Brexit and all the terrorist threats that the Lord would give them wisdom so that they would govern in a way that we could have peace in this nation so that we can get on with our lives and spread the gospel. Whilst what, what Cyrus uh, does here actually amazed the world at the time. His rapid rise to power was, was a thing of extraordinary note. So that when he came to marching on Babylon, you know what? They simply left the gates open without a fight. Cyrus thought he was a very clever boy. He'd done it all himself. But look at 45 verse 1. Look who is the true agent behind. Who is the one who uh, enables his right hand to subdue the nations. It's the Lord who takes hold of his right hand. I will go before you. I will break down the gates. I will give you hidden treasures. Why? Why is God 
acting in this way? Well, there's three linked reasons given in chapter 45. Verse 3. So that you, Cyrus, may know that I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. Verse 4. For the sake of Jacob, my servant, of Israel, my chosen, so that God's people would know that the Lord was God. His electing love was upon them, and he was acting in history for the sake of his people so that they would know. As they saw these events unfold before their very eyes, uh, as they saw the scary events of a new empire being uh, raised up, a new king demolishing other nations, they should not be in fear because the Lord says, I'm sending him so that you will be set free and released to go back to the land. And you will know that I am the Lord God. I announce these things in advance and they come to pass. You can have confidence in my sovereign will, in my electing love of you, my people. And lastly, in verse 6, so that people from all over the earth will know that the Lord is God and that there is no other God. Do you see that God acts in his world so that his unique glory would be known throughout the world? This repeated refrain that there is no other God. He acts for his unique glory and for the good of his people. He's acting in this world because he is the redeeming God. That's how the section began, wasn't it? This is what the Lord says, your redeemer. This is so precious. When you know you're his people. In the apparent chaos and confusion of the events of this world, in the apparent chaos and confusion of the events of our lives, to know that this God has chosen us, set his love upon us, brought us to himself as we put our trust in Jesus Christ, wraps his arms around us and says, I am doing all things for your good to them that love God. All things are working out for your good that my glory may be displayed in all the earth. He sent his son to be our redeemer. All the promises of scripture said that the redeemer would come in Israel. He'd be born in Bethlehem. He would be counted as one who came from Nazareth. All these prophecies, these promises. And so actually, uh, before that happens, God has to get his people back in the land. And it needs to be a functioning land for his Messiah King to come, for the true Redeemer to come for the whole world so that we could put our trust in him. And this plan and purpose so that all the people from all over the earth would acknowledge us. We see that worked out in verse 14 as Isaiah prophesies a day when people are going to come to Jerusalem and announce, surely uh, God is with you and there is no other God. Think of all the upheavals of geopolitics in the rise of the Babylonian Empire and the Persian Empire. Imagine the chaos of all of that. But it was all happening because a sovereign God was working out his plan of salvation to redeem a people for his glory. 
if you're trusting Christ, to redeem you, to save us. How encouraging. It is a turbulent world. And uh, we, we don't have revelation for a lot uh, that give the reasons for, for most of what happens in this world. What exactly is going on is in God's hidden purposes. But this passage reminds us that our sovereign God is still working out those purposes. As Christians, we, we don't get to know all the reasons why specific things and events happen in our lives and in the lives of those we love. Why did that person get back pain and hold them back to do a missions trip? Why the cancer diagnosis? Why the unemployment? Why was my friend attacked and left for dead? But neither are we those who suffer such things in this world uh, as if there was no meaning. No purpose in the universe. Even in perplexing times, the one who trusts in the Lord knows that there is a bigger story in history that we're being caught up into by the loving arms of a sovereign God. And this God is so great that even the dark things of life, the calamities of life, are still under his loving, good, creative control. Uh, Verse 7 of chapter 45 is one of the most striking verses, I think, in Isaiah. I form the light and create darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. I, the Lord, do all these things. We sometimes try and help God out and say, well, you know, all the good things that comes from God, you know, and all the bad things, well, it's it's got nothing to do with God whatsoever. And we think we're helping him out. But what we're doing is dethroning God. If there are things that happen in this universe that rival God, that can trump God's will and desire, then God is not God. And Bruce Ware, when he was with us a few years ago, pushed us to see how dramatic this verse is. It's even indicated in the, in the English language there. I form the light. Well, we form things. But he creates. Only God creates. God creates darkness. I bring prosperity and create disaster. This is one of the most challenging verses for us that God is involved in the dark and difficult things of life. And we struggle with it. But the Lord says, I, the Lord, do all these things things now we need to read other parts of scripture into this and we need to be absolutely certain that God is good Uh, it says in 1st John that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all God does not tempt people with evil there's nothing about God that could be evil and so that we acknowledge that God is, is, is somehow also uh, involved in the dark and the difficult things of life is not to say that he, um, that it, that, that, that he himself is darkness. And we are in the deep end of the pool. But the wonderful, comforting thing for the Christians to acknowledge, even in the darkness, even in the calamities, even in the tragedies of our life, God is... He's still working out his loving, sovereign purposes and plans. 
He hasn't revealed the specifics of, of why certain things have happened, but we know that he is working all things for good for those who love him. And we see this most starkly in the greatest tragedy that ever happened in human history. What was the darkest moment in history? It was when evil people took an innocent man, Jesus of Nazareth, and crucified him to a cross. For here was the creator come in human flesh, and he was utterly rejected by his creation. It was a wicked, evil act of malicious intent to crucify Jesus, the Son of God. People did it of their own will, of their own volition. It is the exact opposite of peace and prosperity. And yet all of it was done in fulfillment of the Scriptures. That's what the Bible tells us, is, it? is that not the case? That they did it because God had a definite plan. In his definite plan and foreknowledge, these events took place. It was the Lord's will to crush him. Because God had an amazing plan of love that through the cross of Christ, a fountain of salvation would be opened up so that people like you and me could come to him and have our sins forgiven and be redeemed and be wrapped up in his plans and purposes. I, the Lord, do all these things. We are in the deepest part of the theological pool. Questions fire off in our heads. But do you see that's what the Bible is saying here? Do you see that? Human beings are morally responsible for all our actions that we freely choose. And yet God is absolutely sovereign over all events, working things according to his will and to accomplish his purposes. And what I want to say to you, even as you, in a sense, come up with all the objections uh, in your mind, if you're his people, what profound comfort for you today in the darkest difficulties of your lives. God's providence is at work. I don't know what troubles and difficulties you bring into the room today, but if you're trusting Christ, I want you to know God is at work. God has his hands underneath you and around you. He's working all things. This is a sovereign God who uses surprising strategies to fulfill his good purposes. Cyrus, imagine that. A pagan king. Yes. He can use surprising strategies in our lives to, to achieve his good purposes. And, and, and God bursts into praise, as it were. Verses 8. You heavens above, rain down my righteousness. Let the clouds shower it down. See, all his ways are righteous. And just let the clouds shower it down. Let the earth open wide. Let salvation spring up. Let righteousness flourish with it. I, the Lord, have created it. 
have a look at Christ and have no doubt that there is any evil or maliciousness in God our Father. Look at his son who only did good, who only loved and cared. This is our sovereign God who acts in all things. Now, the question this morning as I close is how are we going to respond to that? How are we going to respond to such an incredible God? This is the God who is at the center of the universe. How are you going to respond to him? Well, there's, there's two responses, I suppose. One is a, an arrogant response, and it's imagined there in verse 8. We start quarreling with our maker. The Bible knows us so well. He knows us in our, in our sinful hearts. We can object to his sovereignty. We can object to object to the way that he has shaped life. We can object to the way God sees things and object to his claims. We can mock that there is even a plan or that we don't like the plan he has made. We can mock strategies that don't seem to make sense to us. Uh, after all, people have mocked the incarnation, have mocked the virgin birth, have mocked talk of miracles, have mocked the language of sin, have mocked the, the notion that Christ was dying on a cross as an atoning sacrifice for our sins, have mocked the resurrection. Uh, mockery all around. Verse 9. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Now in that woe is a warning to you today. If, if you're one of those mockers, one of those quarrelers against God, it, it is to wake you up. Woe to those who quarrel with their maker. Think about this. You are quarreling with your maker. Humility starts when we recognize who we are in relation to God. The problem is that we have such a high view of ourselves and such a low view of God. And Isaiah is constantly putting before us, look how great God is and, and look, look where you are in comparison with God. Verse 9, we see the analogy that we are cracked pots. You know, you see someone walking down the street and they're shouting their heads off to no one in particular. What are you thinking? You're thinking, crackpot. Crackers. What are we in comparison to our creator? We are cracked pots. Potsherds, pieces of pottery lying on the ground because we're cracked and useless and, and, and there's the pottery quarreling with the maker. Ludicrous. It's the daft image of clay arguing with the potter. You know, there's a piece of clay. Can you imagine? Little morph. And, 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 and the potter's working and, 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 the, and the clay can't see what it's being made into. It doesn't make sense. And, and so the, the piece of clay goes, the potter's got no hands. He's got no hands. He doesn't know what he's doing. Clay can't see where it's going, what's happening. This is, this is to bring us down to the reality of where we are in relation to God. We're the clay, he's the potter. Imagine the, the delivery suite, it goes on to in verse 10. And there's the mother, she's had a rough ride and with one final agonizing scream, the baby comes out and as soon as the baby out, the baby says, well, why did you have me then? 
Well, why did you bother all the effort of pushing me out here? Why did you and uh, that bloke think that was a good idea anyway? That's ludicrous. No. It's out of place. Do you really think we, the clay creator in the hands of the potter, that we have the right to give him orders? The one who made the whole earth and created each one of us? The one whose very hand stretched out the heavens and made billions of stars? Uh, is, he, is he there as our waiter taking down, yes, yes, what would you, what would you like me to do next? No, you, you, if you see God like that, you've completely misunderstood the glory and the greatness and the majesty and the sovereignty of God and that you, you're the created thing. There's an alternative response, isn't there? And it starts really with humility. It is to humbly acknowledge who we are in comparison with God. It is humbly to acknowledge the truth about God, as we see in verse 14. Surely God is with you. Say these folk from Egypt and Cush and these tall Sabaeans as they come to Jerusalem, surely God is with you. There is no other. There is no other God. To humbly acknowledge that there is only one God and he's the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And thirdly, it is to humbly respond to the gracious invitation of God. Look at verse 20. Gather together and come. Assemble, you Fugitives from the nations, ignorant are those who carry about idols of wood, who pray to gods that cannot save. Declare what is to be, present it, let them take counsel together. Who foretold this long ago? It's back to that test, isn't it? Who can say what's going to happen in the future? And it happens. Do your idols know? Does your political party know? Does your philosophy and worldview know? Does your wealth know? that you depend on, does it know? Does your, does your health that you lean on, does it know? No, n- none of these things know. Only God can declare these things. Was it not I, the Lord, and there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior? This is the amazing grace of God. He calls out to an idolatrous world and he says, there's no God apart from me, a righteous God and a savior. There is none but me. And he says that for this end, for this invitation of verse 22. Turn to me and be saved, all you ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. Turn to me and be saved. Have you turned to God? Have you acknowledged that there's no other God apart from Him? Have you bowed the knee and submitted to His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ? It was read to us in the first part of our service, wasn't it? Philippians chapter 2. It takes up the very language of Isaiah here that that, um, every knee will bow. Verse 23 uh, says, The Lord, by me every tongue will swear. Think how striking this is. The Lord has said over and over over again, I am the Lord and there is no other. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess. And then we get in Philippians chapter 2, every knee bowing, every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord. 
have no doubt that Jesus is God the Son. God who came in love to redeem us, who went to that awful evil of the cross to carry your sin, to carry your guilt, to carry my sin and my guilt upon himself so that uh, we could be forgiven. If you have Christ, you have forgiveness. Have you bowed the knee to Christ? Have you sought his forgiveness? Have you trusted him? What a wonderful offer today. Turn to me and be saved. I don't know which part of the world you're from, but you're included in this. All you ends of the earth, turn to me and be saved, for I am God and there is no other. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we are humbled as we come to your word and are reminded that we are your creatures, your special creation, and yet you are the creator, you are the maker, you are the sovereign one. And so we do want to humble ourselves before you. Lord, in our hearts, we are idolaters. We, we chase after so many other things. We worship and delight in so many things other than you. And we thank you for your amazing grace that you sent your one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life, that you invite us to turn and be saved. But Father, enable each one of us this day that we may turn and trust Christ. And we pray particularly for those who come perplexed today as your people, unsure why difficulties and hardships and calamities are besetting them at this time. We thank you that we can turn to you, the God of love, knowing that you have us in your grip. We thank you that you do work all things for your glory and for our good. Lord, help us to lay hold of Christ and rest peacefully upon him this day. In Christ's name, amen. We're going to end with two songs of response here. Perhaps you've never trusted Christ. Today's the day. And the first song uh, is a a prayer, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. And then we're going to sing Amazing Grace because we who've understood The message of Isaiah, understand this is a God of extraordinary and incredible grace that we live our lives in. So let's stand and worship him together.